And welcome back to Fully Equipped. The whole crew is here. Let's get excited about this. You know, we, we've been saying the whole crew is here because one one quarter of our crew has been missing for, man, it feels like a year. But we are all here today. Uncle Gene, RB's here. And the serial killer is back from Boston. Chris, what's back? up, man? Yeah. Oh, buddy. I... It's been so long, I had to actually do a, a Zoom update in order to even join the pod this week. So it's it's been a hot minute since uh, since I have been in the know here. He's been Did you get to Mike's Pastries the, while you were in Boston? Like, Did you get to Mike's I, Pastries? Buddy, I'm I'm a, uh, a seasoned fat guy. I a, walk, a walking all, cream puff at this point? <laughs> I, it, pretty much, yeah. I... Uh, I'm a walking case of heart attack waiting to happen. I had so much good food there. It was ridiculous. So I appreciate the uh, recommendation there. Shout out to food. the pastry palace there. It's a great food city. It is indeed. So I missed last week's episode. Went back and listened to it. Sort of ran the gamut. It was it was a good one. Listen, I... The old course at St. Andrews is is a truly special place. And based on the comments that we received, I think a lot of people agreed with with RB on that one. It, it is, for, for some golfers, it's it's highly emotional. It was a good pod, but I was like, man, I missed, I missed a good one. I always miss the good ones. But anyway, that's what happens when you're on the road. And shout out to all the people that uh, reached out on social. That was very nice. So Very cool. We didn't burn it down either, so there's that. Well, RB didn't burn it down. I can't can't say the same for for Gene. I kept it. I kept it pretty tight you for did. my sta- for good. my standards. For I, your I'm standards, kind of, I'm kind of pleased with myself. So <laughs> you know. All right. Well, I want to kick things off today with a topic that um, I don't think I saw this one coming. The last couple of weeks on Golf.com. We've had a few stories on a certain golf club, and and they've just blown up. I mean, crazy traffic. Uh, last week, had an, an interview that Lee Trevino did recently where he talked about why weekend golfers should not carry a lob wedge. Now, we have a story this week on golf.com from a top 100 teacher who's saying the exact same thing, do not use a lob wedge. There's a lot of lob wedge hate out there, guys. You know, it's one of those golf clubs that that I've said before. If you're a, you know, 20 handicap and above, you probably should not carry a lob wedge. You should be carrying at like the highest lofted wedge is probably like a 56. You know, work work on work on chipping and and trying to perfect that area before you try and get into the mega flops. Um, talked to Bob Bokey and Roger Cleveland before. They both, even though they're both in the wedge business. They have both been on record as saying the same exact thing. If you're a higher handicap golfer, do not use a lob wedge. So where do we stand on this, guys? Do we, do we feel like this the lob wedge is getting getting a bad rap all of a sudden? Is, is it warranted? What are your thoughts? That was one of the first pieces I wrote on golf to, or um, for golf.com. Like it was all about like why the lob wedge is a bad, bad decision for a lot of people because of the way it exposes the leading edge. And it's that, uh, it's like the Dos Equis guy meme. It's like, I don't always hit my, my lob wedge 150 yards, but when I do, it's from a greenside bunker. Like it is one of those funny things that 
I think for a lot of golfers, and I myself, I, I will attest to this. When I was younger and I played a lot of golf, always had a six three in the bag. Uh, no longer. It go, I go 54, 58, and that is it. And I can open that thing up enough with a versatile grind. I don't even think about it anymore. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fairly decent player, but like I look at a lot, I see a lot of wood now, or I see like some people have 62 degree wedges. I'm like, you're nuts. Like, uh, good luck with that. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. I've seen a 64 degree that, that came out recently, the Vokey 64. And I thought, man, who's going to buy this thing? I would love to, I would love to know who's buying this wedge and if they're actually going to put it in play. Cause that thing looked like a spatula. RB. Alice Cooper plays the 64, man. Of course he does, but Alice Cooper's a good player. So he's got the Cooper 64 and he loves it. I mean, how many, how many like 60 and above degree wedges do you would you fit somebody into, Chris? I mean, I, that's gotta be very, <clears throat> very seldom. I can't even tell you the last time I sold anything that was higher lofted than a 60 degree. And I mean, to RB's point having the conversation with player and I mean, outdoor fitting versus indoor fitting in an indoor fitting environment. When you're doing wedge fitting, there's a lot of Q and a that's associated with recommendations on wedge. I mean, we have two different turf types indoors that we hit shots off of both. I like to see a player's pitching motion, chipping motion. And I mean, I'm asking some, uh, some pretty in-depth questions as far as how they use a wedge, what they struggle with and looking at different bounces and grinds. But I mean, as far as a loft recommendation for a 60 degree, uh, if they currently play one and I'm asking if they like it, if they use it regularly, if they're confident with it and they say, yes, I keep it in the set. If they don't currently have one, the chances of me making a recommendation for one are slim to none. Part of this, and I'm, I'm curious if you've done like tests on this team, but like part of this comes down to like the coefficient of friction and of like urethane or rubber and metal. At like a certain point, you reduce friction by a lot because you've added too much loft. Like you're like whatever that I can't remember the name of it. So from a physics, but it's like it is coefficient of friction from like a certain angle. At which point, like you you lose fr uh, traction, and that's why when you see people like hit wedge shots, they de loft it and drive it low. Like I just did. I wrote a piece on the the Adams lob wedge, which I talked about last week, and I think the launch angle was like thirty. So launch angle is 30, although I'm delivering, I can't remember what the dynamic loft was, but it's actually launching lower than the stated loft because you're creating friction that's driving it low. And if you try and open the face, you're actually going to have it start rolling up the face a lot more. And you're not going to get spin to grab. That's why you never see better players hit that like straight, no, uh, no shaft lean lob wedge. It's just like that you see higher handicappers try and play because they're trying to scoop it up. And that's where they just launch them right across greens from like 50 yards. Uh, in most cases. Um, so it does come down to like a science thing, but Gene, have you ever like just taken loft on a golf club and just started like going back? Cause I can think of, again, if you, if you, if a human hits that shot where it's like 60 degrees of delivered loft with like zero attack angle, the ball is just going to go straight up. Right. Like it's just, yeah. and it's not even going to spin that much. Well, it, the, the interesting thing about it too, is the fact there's a, there's a phenomenon uh, called slippage that's that's really interesting, especially when you get into the higher wedges. First off, you're 100 percent right. You you need to deloft that in order to hit it effectively. The problem is, as you deloft it, 
you now bring in the leading edge that we talked about. And especially, you know, for me, I have a 60 in my bag and it's always the only time I use it is when the ball's sitting up in a fluffy lie and I know I can just cut right underneath it and not have to worry about that leading edge. Um, but um, there's this phenomenon called slippage and pretty much anything above a 58 you should only be playing a urethane golf ball. And the reason is when we test urethane golf balls, let's say we get a spin rate of 10,000, our range on that is plus or minus about 600 RPMs, five to 600 RPMs. This is on a robot hitting every, sing every single shot exactly the same. You go to a Serling golf ball, that goes to plus or minus 1,500 sometimes, even 2,000. And not only is it a lower spin, but the way the uh, and it's been explained to me by ball designers, the way that the Serlin grips, there's this phenomenon called slippage, and it doesn't grip every time the same way. And you get flyers, you get uh, sometimes you get balls that spin as much as you're there, but these are the same golf balls, so you just do not get consistency. And the more that launch angle increases, and the higher the spin, the more this phenomenon occurs. So. Uh, you know, my recommendation when you're, you know, if you're going to these higher lofted clubs, you really do want an effective urethane golf ball to accompany it to minimize any deltas in, in spin and consistency. So now you've got the leading edge to contend with and to make sure that you've got the right golf ball. So, you know, this, don't try this at home, kids. This is something that, you know, you've, you've got to be a decent player to, you know, to approach and, and to try to play these clubs. Yeah. You know, the one thing I'm sure, a couple of people out there are listening. They might be saying, well, I had said like a 20 handicap, if you're 20 handicap and above and, you know, handicap, I don't, I don't think is the right way to go about determining if you need a lob wedge. I think it, it's more down to how good is your short game? I've played with plenty yeah, of, you skull the ball. Yeah. Or not, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Plenty, plenty. I've played with plenty of, of good wedge players that are terrible off the tee, but for some reason they have a killer wedge game, like anything around the green from 50 yards and in <coughs> pretty good. So yeah, I don't, don't go based on your handicap. I should, I should have probably pointed that out when I said that, but typically if you're on the higher end of the spectrum for, for handicap, you're probably, you know, wedge game, short game is, is an issue. Now, Gene, you know, I, it's, I find it really interesting that like you mentioned that like phenomenon of slippage because the one thing where you're not going to get slipped is when you have new grips. <laughs> and we have to let you know. He's back. I'm back. Baby. <laughs> All right. So I have to let you know that Fully Equipped is brought to you by Golf Pride because Golf Pride knows that a grip just isn't a grip. It's a piece of performance equipment that is part of your set of golf clubs. It is the only connection between you have you have between you and your golf club. So you want it to be comfortable. You want it to offer the right amount of traction so you don't get that slippage. And you want, want it to offer, you know, the sizing that is right for your hands and the size that you want. Because size doesn't just come down to, you know, what glove size do you use and all those different things. It comes down to what actually feels more comfortable in your hands. And some players that could be a larger grip than standard. For some players that could be a smaller grip than standard. And Studies have proven that when golfers have the right grip, they have the right size, and they have new grips that offer the most amount of traction, they are almost guaranteed through testing to 
hit the golf ball further because they're swinging more confidently. And that's, you know, who doesn't want to hit the golf ball further. Now there's lots of different ways that you can get traction from your grips. you got things like the MCC, which would just happen to be used by the this year's Masters Champion, which offers cord in the top hand and a softer durometer in the lower hand. You also have the Z-grip which offers full cord throughout the entire grip. So you get all traction in, in all types of weather conditions, whether it be cold or rainy or nice and dry, or maybe you have sweaty hands. Maybe that's the way to go. Or if you're on the other end of things and you're looking for the ultimate in comfort, there's the CPX, which is the softest performance grip they offer using variable textures within the grip to reduce vibration and help reduce grip pressure. And also the CP2, which again, helps create a lot of vibration dampening. So if you know you, you, your hands hurt, you want to practice a little longer, it's a great way to go. Now, for fully equipped listeners, you can go to golfpride.com and use the code fully equipped. That's F U L L Y E Q U I P P E D for free shipping on your next order. That is available to all customers in the United States, and there is no minimum purchase required. So if you want to try a couple different grips before you re grip your whole set, it's the perfect way to go. And you can head over to golfpride.com to learn more. So I've spent a couple of weeks out on tour and they've actually been very, I'd say, I would say they've been fruitful weeks, a lot of good content, some interesting stories that are going to be coming up on, on the site. One of them that I just posted today on golf.com about a new trend that's starting to pop up out on tour. So I was talking to, to Dylan Goodwin, who's a ping rep who handles their putters. And we were just, you know, kicking around like what's what's been hot and we've been working on with guys. And he had mentioned that Cameron Champ, I'd gone back to look. Cameron Champ has missed 23 of his last 34 cuts. It's a wow. rough stretch. Yeah, really rough stretch <clears throat> dating back to um, September of 21. Anyway. So one of the things that he's been struggling with in a big way is the putter. And he had made a trip over, because he lives in Houston, he made a trip over to the LPGA's first major, which was being played in, in Houston. And he and Dylan were kicking around some ideas on putters, and he happened to find one of Victor Hovland's backups on the truck. And from just kind of stroking a few putts with with Victor's putter, he found that he really liked the longer 15-inch wind grip that Victor uses on his putter. Now, it's not just the longer grip, but Victor plays his putter at 36 inches. It's standard, I would say, for most putters is, is 35. So slightly longer, but the interesting thing about what Victor does with his, and he's 5'10", so he chokes down an inch and a half. So plays a 36-inch putter, but but actually chokes down to, to basically 30, 34 and a half. And for him, he's found that choking down on the putter has given him a little bit of additional stability. Kind of starts to give a, a slight counterbalance feel to it. But what Dylan told me that I found to be really interesting is that Victor and now Cam Champ, who's using a 37-inch based off of doing a little bit of practice with, with Hoplin's putter, they're, they're not the only guys that are going longer. Tony Finau is using 37 inches. Uh, Sahith Tagala is using 37 inches. And Stuart Sink is now using a 39-inch putter, and they're all choking down. But they're not adding additional weight because counterbalancing, you would think, okay, if you're choking down on, on a putter that's longer, 
Maybe you're adding additional weight to the butt end of the grip. Maybe you're adding a little bit of additional weight to the head. It's something that we saw TaylorMade came out with with a putter that Justin Rose used for for a little while. I'd say probably about eight or nine years ago. One the US and Open. So, yeah, one US Open. And yeah. he's exactly no, you're you're right, RB. So we've seen this before, but the interesting thing for me is that we're now starting to see this trend of guys just going longer and choking down on the putter, but they're not adding any additional weight. I find that to be fascinating because it's it's an easy thing that a lot of golfers can do or at least try and they don't have to do any additional modifications to the grip or to the head. So, um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It, it's certainly, I would say it's a trend. RB has got a putter grip there, but it's definitely not one that I had heard. Dylan said that it started the end of last year and a couple of guys had some success out on tour and that sort of spurred other guys to try this out. I think it's, I think it's interesting just simply, like, again, simply because they're just going longer and they're choking down. It's not a, not a difficult thing to do for, for any golfer out there if you're struggling with your putter. And I wouldn't say it's anything new by any means. I mean, it's, uh, it's been around, it's been done. There's been multiple OEMs that have, have produced offerings. I mean, that, that daddy long legs that TaylorMade had come out with that yeah. was, you know, counterbalanced and had, you know, the, the extra weighted grip up at the top. I, I had one, I tried it, I used it for a season and then went, eh. And went back to you know more of a traditional style putter. Uh, I mean, it's nothing that people are coming in and asking for yet. And it, it's always kind of interesting to me what tour players will do with with putting and with putters. I mean, anything that they feel like gives them even a remote advantage in strokes gained in the putting category, they're willing to try. And it's uh, it's always kind of interesting to look around the putting green at tour events and see okay this guy's had success with it and then the very next week oh here's two three four more guys that are trying the same or something similar than what that previous player from last week's event had success with it's kind of like um you know the trends kind of ebb and flow through tour all the time and i know some people that that work with uh work with data and work with some tour players and one of the things the, and I can remember they, they just did a questionnaire recently. They did like an Instagram Q and a, and someone asked like, how come you don't show like a lot of like you practicing your putting? And I, you know, I, someone who I work with, it, it does like almost strictly putting coaching, or he has a, you know, does a lot of very focused putting coaching, but it's all about learning to read greens. It's not so much the putting stroke itself, because similar to how I, people talk about like club head speed. This is why, you know, Matt Fitzpatrick works so much on club head speed is because it is a variable that you can eliminate because it's not something that's going to change necessarily day to day. So if you can continue to build it up and continue to build it up, you're going to hit your golf clubs further. You're going to have shorter clubs into green. You're going to hopefully increase your strokes gain. You should theoretically be able to do that because you're hitting shorter clubs into the green. But putting is, has this variance of like, you know, some people have a good putting week, some people have bad putting weeks. You look at someone back on tour. Now this is a throwback. Uh, you, go, you guys might remember this more than me, uh, but like Joe Durant was one of the best ball strikers on tour. Like always, always, always ranked in one of the, as one of the best ball strikers on tour, and I can think that he won maybe three or four times ever, and that's because his putter got really, really hot. Um, but beyond that, like he was always you know in the one twenty five on on tour, kept his card for a long time because his ball striking was so darn good. So it's like raising the floor, and I think for a lot of players, it's just sometimes it's just trying to find that. And 
a lot of times I think it's mental for some players. I think it's about like kind of balancing out the stroke or creating something that's a little heavier or counterbalance. Just like years ago, everyone wanted a 32 inch butter, 33 inch butter. Now that wasn't necessarily like the tour kind of trend, but it was something that you started to see a lot more. I saw in retail probably about 10 years ago, people always come in there. I want my putter short. I want my putter short. I want to be like eye lined over it and all this stuff. But to your point, Jonathan, I would say the trend on tour has definitely been to go longer putter. Not even if someone doesn't go to like a, uh, like the counterbalance grip just to like practice more, they're standing a little bit more upright. That's that trend has really started to change again. So they're not putting so much pressure on their back when practicing. And I think from a counterbalance general player perspective, I think it's, it's a, it's a good thing to try. You might just feel more comfortable, but uh, you know, as, as something that I think creates a, a, a measurable benefit. I think it's really hard to quantify. <laughs> it's kind of like, I, I know I messaged you earlier today <coughs> off the, off the record for the pod. All I could think of was like, I really want to get one of these Adam Scott long putters in my hands again and, and give it a try because I'm curious if I could use Arcos or use like one of the apps that I have for practice putting on an actual physical green, it'll measure strokes gained as you go through like a practice routine. I'd love to try it because do I think it's going to make a huge difference? Probably not. Cause I tested one in the past, but I think for some players, you know, you get it in your camera chance. The perfect example of like the modern tour player drive it far as hell. And then once in a cup, once every two years, Wedge game gets hot. Putter game is average because your proximity is so close. And you guess what? You got a job for another two years. You guaranteed your card. Boom. Like what? Like and you, the you know rumors are he doesn't really like to practice that much from what I've heard. So just put it out there. Yeah, it's that's a good that's a good point. You know, I feel like the putter is the, that one club in the bag for a lot of those big bombers. The, the putter is the club that they just have to have an average week. And if they do, they win by five. I mean, if you look at, I mean, Rory is another good example. I mean, he, he usually is right there at the top in driving distance and, and club at speed and, and all the measurables that tell you that he's, he's a bomber. But his wedge game, average putter has been below average. I mean, he's, he went back to the, to the tailor made the spider hydroblast last week with a, with a fresh super stroke grip. But he's another guy who's searching. So yeah, I mean that's that's these guys aren't looking. If you're if you are long off the tee like a Cameron Champ, you're not looking for a putter that gets you. I mean, sure, if you I mean if you could if you could find a putter that that's consistent and is you know relatively hot for you know three to four or five six months. I mean, hell, you'd take that in in a heartbeat. But you're just looking for something that makes you average on the greens because your length is such an advantage that you don't need to be great. You just need to be right there in the middle with the putter. It's the JB Holmes want, model. You guys, you guys I, want yeah, to hear, 100%. you guys want to hear something really scary about putting that is terrifying. So, um, so my robot can putt and my mobile robot, um, we adapted it for putting. We've actually done putting. we, we did a putt off against Sayri Pak and uh and and Beater in Korea. But um when I was developing it, we weren't on a golf course, we were on a cement pad and it had like a 10% grade. So I just set out the diameter of a cup at a 15 foot nasty slider, literally on cement, the most difficult thing to putt on, hundred percent. Every putt I hit, 100%. So we finally took it out to a green and um, set it up on a 15-foot putt 
that maybe had this putt had like two feet of break on cement on top of it, a slider downhill. So this was relatively flat with maybe like three or four inches of break. Our percentage, 70%. We dropped down. And this was same putt, same ball, same swing, and just the randomness of the turf and the randomness of things. So the the point of this is, as a golfer, you can only trust that your stroke is consistent and you read. And then after that point, it's up to the golf gods. You don't have any control over that putt anymore. And it, when I was doing this and when I saw this, I realized that what made Tiger so special during his run was he defied those laws of average. He actually had some ability to, to make, especially, and I don't even know if they, you know, I'm sure they have a statistic for this, but I I like to call them pressure putts. He had the ability to make it under pressure, um, but he defied the laws of statistics on the amount of putts that he made under pressure to do that. But you know, for amateur golfers, it's trust your stroke, trust your read and trust your speed. And that's about it. And if you feel like you made a good putt and you missed it, sometimes you can't beat yourself up on it because there's just too many other um, factors that come in. There's I'm variable a change. I'm a masochist. I, I'm just going to beat myself up. That's, that's I, what I do. I have to thank Gene for that statistic because next time I've got a 30 foot putt and leave it seven feet short, <laughs> I am absolutely <laughs> saying that was some type of environmental influence. I made the perfect stroke. Reed was great. I hit my line and I'll be damned. Didn't you've go got, in. You've I, got the eternal excuse from now on. Something happened. Mr. Robot said I did everything right. <laughs> Well, that's if like Gene said it. It must be true. It must be has true. to be true. If you look at Wyndham Clark's uh, stats from last week, uh, just pull them up really quick here. And strokes gained approach to the green, he was number one. Strokes gained around the green, he was thirty uh, ninth. Strokes gained putting, he was he was third. But a big part of that was his like proximity last week. I believe his his proximity throughout the uh, the whole event was especially on the, in the final round. Like he was hitting it extremely close. And I think that's where, you know, that's simple. You make your, you know, closer, every like foot you get closer to the hole, you increase your chances. Right. And I think that's where like from a ball striking perspective, stats prove out that the best ball strikers are always going to kind of be around the top there. They're not going to fluctuate too much from a leaderboard variance perspective, but it's, it's almost like Xander, right? Xander has not won a lot, but he is almost always up there because his ball striking is so darn good. So, um, you know, if you can find something that works on those greens, get hot and just, you know, ride the wave, <laughs> ride the wave and then grab a new putter, especially if you're on tour. Cause you can just, you know, go to the bag and grab another one. Or you could just be like Wyndham Clark and, you know, basically steal Ricky Fowler's putter. <laughs> they go and win. <laughs> Rick finishes T14 and, and Wyndham wins with, with, I mean, if you didn't see the story in golf.com that I wrote, Wyndham Clark is using an exact replica of Ricky Fowler's Odyssey putter all the way down to the same amount of lead tape on the sole, the insert, everything. It's identical. Under grip though. Does he not have the longer grip too? 
He also has a longer grip too. There we go. Look at that. We brought it all the way back. <laughs> there, there you go. Another guy using the longer grip and, and, and choking down a little bit. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it, again, it's certainly a trend, but yeah, I thought that was hilarious that Wyndham Clark steals Ricky Fowler's putter. I did find out this week when I was out at the Byron Nelson, I had in the story that I wrote, I traced that back because it wasn't, I guess you could say it's Ricky Fowler's putty putter, but it was actually Ricky Romano Fowler's caddy who was using that putter first. And then Fowler tried his caddy's putter when they were out in, in uh, Coachella Valley right before the American express and he loved it. And that's when he decided to start testing it and he put the putter in play that week. I did find out that it wasn't actually Ricky Romano. That's not where it originated. It actually originated with Ricky Romano's former loop, Charlie Belgian. Charlie Belgian was using that putter. And then Ricky Romano tried it, liked Charlie's putter. So it it actually goes all the way back to Charlie Belgian. Which I, you know, again, being a gear nerd, I love that. It's, it's like I'm always trying to find where those trends or or a popular putter originates. So it wasn't with Ricky Romano, it was with Charlie Belgian. There you go. Anyway. All right. Something that a buddy of mine passed along, and I have to mention this because we we love us some old gear. But uh, Pep Anglis on the European tour, somebody posted a photo on social media of a 50-degree Nike Engage wedge that's still in his bag. Nike Engage wedges, that's a little bit far back. But that wasn't just the coolest thing. Apparently, his backup driver, this is a guy who plays on the European tour, his backup driver is a Nike Vapor. <laughs> RB is shaking his head. Chris is nodding his head. They just don't go away. They do not Man. go away. They're never gonna go away. They're like cockroaches. Yeah, they just they they just keep they just keep hanging around. Nike golf clubs, man. Finau won again. That's another win for a Nike the Nike Vaporfly Pro driving iron. It's, it's the same one that Brooks Kepka is still using. Nike clubs, even though Nike hasn't been in the business since 2016, they're still hanging around, and I love it. It begs the question: like, how much time do you think has to pass before? They're all gone on tour. Ooh, I mean, at what, at what point do we go? Nike is now completely irrelevant and non-existent. No representation at all on the PGA tour. Justin Sue still uses a, a method putter that I grabbed some photos of recently. Um, so there, there are still a, a couple of guys. I would say it would, it would be if Finau told me last year, that he has this one and he has another backup. And he said that he's expecting each one of these irons to last them at least, at least, you know, three years. It's realistic. So he's, he's like, if I can keep this one and then I have the next one, then I'm getting, then I'm getting closer towards, you know, champions tour status. And at that point, maybe, you know, a different club goes in the bag. But I think it's that. I think these guys are just going to keep rolling with it. Finau loves that club. Kepka loves his. Um, Sue really likes that method putter. He's been using it for years. So I do. I think it would it would be if a guy ended up going to the Champions Tour or maybe they lost their card. But Finau's not losing his card. Kepka's no longer on the PGA Tour. And Sue's been playing pretty good. So, you, I don't you, know. 
you want to you want to hear something sad is so they were one of my biggest sadder than talking about Nike golf clubs. Well, no, <laughs> they were they were one of my biggest clients until they weren't. And that was a story in and of itself. <clears throat> Everybody got called in the same morning at like 9 a.m. for a company-wide meeting. And Nike just went, that's it. You're done. And 15 minutes later, security escorted everybody out. And I mean, they were like working on projects, everything. And a buddy of mine who had worked for Nike Golf and then went over to another division, um, he was called up. And they said, um, we need your help. We don't know how to turn these machines off. They had like rapid prototyping machines running and everything like that. And he said he walked into this office and he said it was like one of those movies where everybody had died and, and everything was exactly like computers were on, machines were running, and there was nobody in there. But it, wow. it, my, my, my greater point is Nike, because I used to test all their stuff their stuff performed to the, to the point of this conversation just as well, if not better than the top manufacturers, but what the top manufacturers did from a competitive standpoint was so brilliant in that they went to not the tip of the spear because the tour players, especially the ones under contract realized it was good, but the next level down and they said, Oh, you can't play Nike. That's a department store brand. That stuff, you know, it's just goofy logos and, you know, colors and it's not worth it. And it worked. All their marketing, Tiger Woods, all these players, they still couldn't get that one part of the pyramid that they needed. Those players right underneath the PGA level that were the influencers to, to buy in. And they kept grinding and grinding for years and years and years. And finally, the interesting thing that I got from the inside, they became too big of a company to care. Nike Golf was more of a hindrance, even though it was making money because of the overall portfolio of Nike. And so they decided to stick with the clothing business and, and exit out. But they made good stuff. And their golf ball, Rock Ishii, who was, is a great ball designer, and he he went to Callaway after um, – after Nike and he was kind of part of Tiger's inner circle when Tiger was on his run he told me he said you know we were about a year away from kind of equaling if not overtaking the Pro V1 in this evolution from a design perspective and he was really kind of surprised that i mean that last iteration of the golf ball really was a a great performing golf ball so um they made good stuff, but they simply, and it's unbelievable to say because they're Nike, the 800-pound gorilla, but they got out-messaged in the golf space, and they they never could really make that effective, those effective inroads um, because everybody else just labeled them as a department store brand. I think with Nike, especially with that night, the, you mentioned the Engage Wedge, and I got two sets kicking around in my shop behind me, which I uh, very much still enjoy uh, using. The 50 degree is probably one of the best looking 50 degrees ever made. Uh, you know, good hands from Mike Taylor on that. Uh, but I, I always think it's like from the irons, the closer you got to the short game, the better the clubs were. Yes, you can make fun of the putters and stuff like that, but they did make really good putters. Uh, obviously, fantastic wedges, great irons. Uh, 
it was just a matter of, I think the drivers had some unique center of gravity locations. And I've seen that. I used to see them in fittings. I wonder if Chris had like any experience with it, but like, I can remember the, the, the covert if was not very good, but if you got in the hands of the right player, it was unbelievable. Like because of the way the center of gravity was, it was so high and forward that if you had someone who like really smashed almost kind of down on it, uh, it was inc- like, it was incredible. But like there was a huge like there was a lot of mass in the hosel, and there was all these kind of like little design things that didn't necessarily work the greatest, um, or f- from a uh, forgiveness perspective. But uh, yeah, I mean, especially the wedges, like those engage wedges, I I line up to buy. If I find if I, if I see them at a used store, usually they're under like forty bucks and they're rusted, so people don't like buying rusted golf clubs, um, which I don't mind at all. I load up on those things, so I, I do have a few sets, including I think two fifty eight degrees. And I do have two sixties, although I don't really use them that much. Cause you know, as we said earlier, I'm not that good anymore. I feel like we talk about Nike like once a quarter, maybe, maybe a little bit more often than that, depending on who's winning with it. But yeah, I love, I love me some good Nike stories. The, the one that Gene was talking about with the golf ball. I remember writing that, that story on when Tiger first put the Nike ball in play and Nike they just they could not ramp up production fast enough and title has beat them to the punch and i mean i i'm with gene i think they were close i think they were close to to having it like they had all the momentum and then and then titleus who had who had the production capabilities they just absolutely like just put them underneath a tsunami and uh, nike never recovered but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting what if, like that was the, the part, like the takeaway from the story that I wrote was like, what if Nike had overtaken Titleist? Landscape might look a little bit different. Nike may still be in the hard goods industry, but they're not. And we're now still talking about golf clubs that were, we're probably around what now, I guess, seven, eight years ago. And we're still talking about them. I can't, I can't name, name me another brand that we talk about on a regular basis that that's a seven or eight year old golf club. Can't do it. Jim, it's just Jim Herman, Jim Herman had an original Adams idea hybrid in the bag two weeks ago. Some, I can't remember where I saw it. Someone posted a picture <laughs> of it and I don't know if he gamed it. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out at some point when we get back out there, uh, I'll start asking around, but he hadn't, this It was like this picture that I saw and I was like, Damn, I got one of those. And we just talked about that and it's in his bag. Like, first of all, where the hell did he get it? Because it looks really new. Um, but there's really oh, not eBay. a lot of yeah, probably. Yeah, there's just there's just not a lot of old stuff kicking out there anymore. It's kind of like I know he hasn't been around much recently, uh, but like Burger was buying those MC tailor made cavity bags off eBay. Like that was the only place you get them. So you know, if if you get an address that says purchased by Daniel Burger or like Jim Herman, you're like, oh, it's just is this that guy? Oh, maybe it is. Oh, well, send his address now. I mean, so you guys, you're, probably gonna get his, you're probably going to get his agent's address, to be honest. Okay, yeah. So long as the, the credit card or the check clears, you, you probably don't care who you're sending it to. You're just, you're just trying to trying to meet product. Um, anyway. All right. So we had a golf ball guide that if you get the bag, if you get golf magazine, you probably saw it for those that didn't, we highlighted 61 new golf balls that are that are out there some of them are are i just want to say new they're not brand new i mean it's it's updates of 
like for example, the Pro V1 and the Pro V1X and, and the different variations that are out there. But here's something that, that's interesting. And I don't think I realized this until I saw this new guide up on golf.com. And it just, as we're recording today on Wednesday, it, it just went live. Looking at 61 golf balls is, is very daunting. And I, and it makes me, it makes me wonder if that's how weekend golfers feel when they look at something like this, because it's gotta be terrifying. Now I will point out that we're, we're talking about doing some, some robotic testing. So we're, we're hopefully going to try and, and add some insights and analysis to make it a little bit easier to digest all of this. But again, we're just talking about this guy that was just released. It does. It makes me, it makes me feel, I don't know any other, any other piece of gear in the bag where I would feel as anxious just looking at it going like where the hell do i start can i i have a very funny story about this because you mentioned like new golfer or like someone who's not into golf and like trying to make a golf ball selection so a very very long time ago i had a friend that worked in a convenience store (laughs) all right way back in the day it was like his first job working at a convenience store and i was working at a big box golf store and he came in one day because we were like meeting up to go do something after work and he had never been in the store before. He's not a golfer, never swung a golf before, maybe knew who like Tiger Woods was. Like that was it. He just came in to like see me because I was finishing my shift and I was headed out. And he walked back and most people have been to like a big box store, which has all the golf balls on like this one area on the shelf. That's at least that's how we used to do it. It'd be like this whole area and you know, you'd have your, your Titleist, your Callaway and, and all the golf balls were, were set everywhere. Right. And he walked in and the first thing he said to me, because he had just come from work, he goes, it looks like the cigarette display. It's like, this is back before like half the label was like, you know, a warning label. And I'm not encouraging people to take up smoking, by the way, or any other form of that. That's fine. But he walked in, he goes, people just have their brands. It's identified very distinctly by color. It's in an area, probably like somewhat paid for by the the company, you know, where it is in the, in the end cap or on the side or whatever it was. He's like, you know, people just, he said, he stood there for like five minutes while he's waiting. People just walk in, they like grab their box and they walk to the front or they grab their box and they walk to the front. He's like, it's like people buying cigarettes. I thought, well, first of all, it's a disposable. So I guess I can kind of see your point, but the, just the brand colorization and all this stuff to me, I, he had no idea what to buy. Like he wouldn't, he would have any clue. And I think for anybody who's trying to make the decision between what's uh, trying to think of American pricing, you're 50 or $60 for a dozen golf balls versus $29 for a dozen golf balls. It's a hard decision. I mean, that's why we create the guide. So at least we have this, there's like this funnel for people to kind of decide and I think in most cases, I think for mo- like a lot of golfers, like they choose to go with something that is more value priced versus the other, like the tip of the pyramid when it comes to price. But it is, it, it is, it's daunting. It's extremely daunting. And I think that's why, you know, that's why I like doing the guide because, you know, although it's tedious, uh, credit to J-Dub for helping that layout in the magazine. Uh, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in for golfers. It's confusing. I can't imagine like what it'd be like to not know what you want and walk into a store and go, what do I need? You know, ball fitting is important. <laughs> it's a yeah. piece of gear you're using on every shot. But, and I think that's why, and I would love to get Chris's take on this. I mean, I think that's why it's important. If you're going to go get fit, make sure you bring your golf ball, the ball that you're currently playing. If you, if you have, let's just say it's your favorite ball and you have, you know, a couple extra dozen laying around and you're going to be doing a, a fitting at an indoor facility, I would I would say it behooves you to bring some product 
you know, if it's not, you know, or you could ask them, say, Hey, do you, do you have this ball? What do you, what do you typically use for, for, uh, for club fittings? But I do, I think it's important. If they don't have your ball, you need to bring it because if you're just showing up there and you're hitting something completely different, that then you're not, you're not getting, you're not getting an accurate fitting because you're going to then go and use that gear that you got fit for using a, let's just say a titles pro V one X. And now you're going to go out there and you're going to use a, a velocity or, you know, a Callaway ball or whatever you use or a TP five. You really need to make sure that you're using the ball that you play on a regular basis when you're out on the golf course. Oh, and that's in a fitting environment like us at TruSpec, a, that's part of the interview process is what golf ball do you typically play? And the amount of players that, uh, whatever I find is, is kind of surprising. It's, they don't have whatever's on sale, whatever I find, whatever's left in my bag. You know, they might play two, three or more different types of golf balls in a round. And I mean, as we're talking to the player and going through the fitting process, you know, that is something that we talk about is, okay, we're going to fit you with this particular golf ball. We're seeing results with this particular golf ball. We would recommend that you play, you know, all of your rounds of golf with the same ball. To your point, it's the only piece of equipment that's used on every single shot on every single hole. So having something that is a good match for your set, how it is that you swing the club, hit the ball, and the reaction around the greens and I mean, short game specifically is going to vary ball to ball. So having something that's at least consistent makes a huge difference over time. So, and if it's, if it's one of those scenarios, like, oh, I play a, a vice that's like, great. Do you have any in your bag? Let's test with the ball that you play. Same thing with some of the, like the Kirkland or the Snell ball. Those aren't balls that we keep in the studios, but if my player comes in with their golf bag and they've got some with them, that's exactly what we're doing. The fitting, what they like to play. It makes me think of that that old ad. Uh, it was John O'Hurley, or most people think of him as, as Mr. Peterman from Seinfeld. It was like this old 30-second commercial. He was talking about, like, what golf balls do you play? And he goes, I play Ranger. Ranger. Yeah. Ranger. <laughs> you, can go, you can go to the plate. You can buy them. They're already pre-striped and pre-marked for you. Um, you know, they come in all different colors, sizes. They go different distances. And uh, I can't remember who else was in it as well, but it was like this little 30-second goofy, like, golf thing, that, spoof that they did. And I just remember, Ranger. Buy them anywhere. And it was just like, oh, this is so, so ridiculous. But there are people like I, I'll, you know, I'll be like very frank. Like I have no more than I have mm, probably like 15 dozen golf balls kicking around like my shop. or kicking around here. Maybe 10. Let's put it that way. 10 if we're talking just like straight, straight up premium golf balls. I have no more than two dozen of, of any brand. And the reason is because I, even though I, I don't even take my own advice sometimes. I kind of use like two boxes and then like, I'll go, okay, well, what's the next kind of thing that I would want to try? <laughs> it's just, just bad. Cause that's kind of part of it. It's part of my job. Unless, you know, anyone out there, you know, you want to load me up. I'll be, I'll be happy to take a, a bunch of couples, but um, I like testing them, but I also know that it's not hugely beneficial to go to something that's like way outside of the range of performance, but golfers do that. And they're like, how come I hit my seven right over the greens? Well, cause you just went to a two piece golf ball that spins to your point, Gene earlier, way less. And all of a sudden it's like, I just flew the green and it didn't hold. And I, I tried to hit my lob wedge and I sculled it or I didn't spin and went up and landed straight down. Like you're, you're, you're messing with variables here every time. And it's, it's like the same with grips. If you have different grips on all your, all your golf clubs, whether through your set or you buy a, a gap wedge and your other two wedges are a different, like uh, grip on any, whatever, like you're just messing yourself up. 
Like, why why do people not just eliminate variables? Especially too, if you're going to a place like Truspeg and you're getting fit, you're spending a lot of money on golf clubs. Like, just just buy some buy the same thing all the time, right? Like, you don't you don't go out and buy size twelve shoes and size nine shoes next time, right? Or like you buy size twelve and try size fourteen, right? On the same brand, just use one thing and then at least find some consistency in your golf game. I love Darby just said that because that's exactly what I was going to say. Golfers are are willingly spending six seven hundred dollars on a custom custom fit driver, especially if they're going with an up an upcharged app, and yet they won't spring the to buy. You know, they find a golf ball that they like that works, and they won't spring for three or four or five dozen for the season. It's like, hey, I'll just I'll play with whatever. Well, like how many how many golf balls do you really lose? Depends on the depends on the day for me. I guess <laughs> there's a there's a misconception out there too that I hear all the time. Um, that's really interesting, and people tell it to me so much, and they they go, "I'm not good enough to play a urethane golf ball," and it's like a urethane golf ball doesn't activate at 120 miles an hour. It doesn't activate at a negative seven attack angle with the wedge. A urethane golf ball gives you performance characteristics regardless of your skill level that are better than a two-piece or a Serling golf ball. So it's, is it worth it to your game? Um, but it's not a matter of skill. It's just a matter of, do you want that extra benefit that the golf ball will give you? And so you don't need to reach a certain skill level to play a urethane golf ball. What you need to look at and go, is it worth the money? Is my game at a point where I, I feel like I can, you know, I'm 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 now hitting greens. Do I want to be holding greens? That's the difference. If you're not hitting greens, it doesn't matter. But once you start hitting greens and actually start, you know, kind of aiming and you, you've got a little bit more consistency, then the golf ball starts coming into play. Um, if you're missing every third shot, just play with whatever you find. But once you get to a certain skill level, um, you know, the golf ball really does have a benefit. I, I think of the you know, a side example, you know, like buying the right thing and making sure you have the right thing. Like, you know, you guys obviously know I just went, went away. We were over in the UK. I think my wife like stressed over was her shoes, like fighting waterproof shoes and like walking shoes. And I have like lots of pair of comfortable walking shoes. And she got, and I said, you know what all the caddies were on tour? A lot of them wear those on clouds or the, the hokas. Hopefully I said that right. Hokas or hookahs, whatever it is. Um, so she, you know, they were not inexpensive shoes. And after like one day of wearing them, it was like, this was the most value. This is the most valuable thing I could have ever purchased because I use them all the time. And just like a golf ball, use it on every freaking shot. So just get something that you like and stick with it. Amen. It's a good place. Good place. To end that one. All right. Yeah. We, we have a couple more topics, but let's hold them for next week because I want to get to a couple of mailbag questions and, we we are due for a mailbag episode because we do have a lot of questions that have been coming in. I've I've been telling people, oh yeah, we'll get to that one on the pod, and we never do. So I'm just a big fat liar. But um, let's get to three of them this week. First question: Somebody wanted to know is what would you equate the Shrixon ZX5 LS to in the Titleist and TaylorMade lineups? I actually looked. Because we have our handy dandy robotic data, and I want to get Chris's take too. But based on the numbers, the DX5 
LS would be very similar in launch and spin at 95. What we saw was it's it's almost identical in launch and spin to the Stealth 2 Plus, TaylorMade Stealth 2 Plus. And on the Titleist side, the closest comp I could find, because a lot of the Titleist stuff from, from this year is very low spin. Um, and some people might be surprised by this, but it's probably going to be like a, man, I would say like a, a TSR2 would be, the, would be the closest comp in terms, of, in terms of launch and spin, but still. The TSR two is a little bit lower launching. I mean, what do you guys think? Would you would you agree with those two as as comps, or would you go a different direction? Go ahead. I'll let you handle this, got, Chris. You want me? To, okay, fair enough. You take. I you fit with them. I don't. I hit a couple shots, and I'm like, this is good. You know, I'll default to the guy who fits them all the time. Well, that's so. I mean, that's that brings up an interesting point. So, I mean, when it comes to lateral comparisons of product from different vendors and different OEMs, you you have to take into account the, the human element. So how you perceive shapes, the, the strike location on the face, every one of these heads has a, a particular performance quality when it comes to strike location. And Gene, you can, you can kind of validate this, that there is going to be some that will perform similarly and then also completely different based upon strike location. So if you're somebody Absolutely. that is a heel striker versus a toe striker, high on the face, low on the face. So while there might be similarities on paper, one thing that you can't take into account for is how someone is visually going to process the shape, the size, how the golf club lays, and how it is that they essentially manipulate the head at address or through impact. So if you look at a particular shape, a particular optic on top, and their strike location goes from heel to toe based upon shape and optic, I mean, you're going to have completely different performance characteristics regardless if the heads test the same on a robot. So it's while there may be similarities on paper, I always encourage people, don't come in with a preconceived notion of what you're going to walk out the door with, because as you start to test, even if we use the exact same shaft, you may notice your strike location changes completely head to head based upon how it is that you perceive that shape and also how it is that you address the ball or strike the ball based upon the alignment aid or just how you manipulate it prior to or during impact. There you go. So maybe don't just go off the robot. <laughs> what do we say? Good start starting go point. Go get start. fit. Yeah. Yeah. Again, and that's that's all we're doing with robot data. It's just it's just uh, to give you an idea of where to start from there. You, you certainly want to go get fit. You don't want to just buy blindly. Um, anyway. All right. Next question. Somebody wants to know they play a forward at 42 and a half. What length would you want to play your seven wood at if you were going to add one to the bag? Let's say like 41 inches. I, I honestly said for it's a 42, 42 or 41, seven, five would be the shortest I would go unless someone is looking to fill a particular gap. The reason being, and I, you know, I'm someone who plays, even like, if they're uh, using a forward at 42 and a half, you'd still go with a seven wood at 42. Cause loft is going to create launch and spin. So you always have the ability. It's, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's easier to make down up, come down than down, go up. 
it's easier to take something off of it than it is to make it go longer. So, and I, interesting enough, I talked to, uh, at the, at uh, Hilton head, I was talking to JJ, uh, we back from Titleist about this exact thing. Like, how are you manipulating loft and, and, uh, length? And he says, like loft is based on, we're looking for spin and like a window. Right. And then ball speed, we're looking at shaft. Because if we can go a little longer, it helps someone get a little bit extra. Because we're always pulling levers, right? It's like the fitting uh, philosophy. So if we can pull a lever to give someone a little extra ball speed, then they're going to hit it a little further. They might create a little bit of extra spin. But again, in this case, we're talking about the best players in the world. It's easier for them to take spin off or hit it lower. Um, so for someone who is probably not swinging at the, the swing speed of a tour player, and you're using a seven wood, it gives you the ability, if you want to, you can choke down, hit it a little steeper and get it out of the rough. But if you're on a par three and you need to, you need to create that, that gapping properly between the, the four wood and like your short, your next longest club or iron or whatever it happens to be having extra length allows you to hit it, get that extra distance though, trying to force yourself to swing it faster. Cause everyone knows or not everyone, but like I think in most cases, if you try and swing it faster, you're going to, in a lot of cases, screw up. Um, because you're trying to force the way out of it. Whereas the longer length just gives you that option. You can always choke down, but you can't stand there going, man, I wish this club had an extra inch on it. <laughs> so that's, that was his thing. And that's, that's how I do it. Cause I, I literally play my set. Like I go right now, my set is driver at 45 and a half inches. I play at the mini driver at 43 and a quarter inches. The burner is awesome by the way, because I play a very short golf course. So it's fun to hit. And then I play a forward at 42 and a half inches. So it's only that three quarter inch. Cause I can, I mean, I can hit a low heel cut, like the best of them. So I can hit that forward 200 yards if I have to, but if I want to turn it over, it'll go a lot further. So you can always take something off, but it's harder to make it go a lot further when you're working. At least that's what I find. And I think for a lot of players, it's probably the better way to go. Cause you, most golfers need speed and speed creates launch and spin, which makes the ball stop faster, which if you're using a seven wood is very important. Crushed it. Yeah, Thanks. Say, Thanks, Chris. See, I still got, I still got some fitter in me. I still got lots of fitter. Say, in me. I felt like I was, uh, I was sitting in on a, on a fitter round table right there. Um, all right, going to save the most controversial question for the end of the pod. So, Gene's question. Got it. Yes, Gene. This is this is this is a question from yeah from Gene. <laughs> this the question asks: What if the PGA Tour adopted the USGA's model local rule golf ball, and the Live Tour decided to not use it? How many players would defect to Live? Zero. I I will Boys. receive the rest of my time. I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Chris weigh in on this one because I've been enough of a blowhard on this subject. So let 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 him talk about it a little bit. Man, that's tough. I mean, it's it's completely uh, opinion based and subjective. I mean, how many guys would say to hell with this? I don't want to play a, a dialed back golf ball, and I'm going to give up my my spot on the PGA Tour just so I could go and play uh, the Live Tour and play the golf ball I've always played, I I would have to say, I'd have to agree with RB. I mean, I don't see anybody just going, oh yeah, I don't want to give up this golf ball. I mean, if everybody is dialing back the ball and everybody's on the same level playing field, I mean, I don't necessarily see it being a end-all, be-all, that's it, drawing my line in the sand, forfeiting my tour card that I've worked so hard to get and or had for X number of years because of a golf ball. It's 
I don't think it's going to have so much of an effect that players are just going to have a mass exodus from the PGA Tour. I think you'll see a couple. It, you know what it makes you think of? It, it kind of like, uh, I had to look it up here. I, I'm, I was like very quickly looking this up. It makes me think of the 2007 movie featuring, uh, what's his name? Um, guy from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, losing the thing right now, but Tour de Pharmacy, which was a spoof on the Tour de France where everyone's on steroids. And it's like, do you want to play in the majors or do you want to go play on the, the, the juiced up tour? Go ahead. It's just, if, you, if it's an entertainment product, by all means. I know I said I concluded my time, but then of course I, I thought of this movie immediately. Um, Tour de Pharmacy. I don't even, I've never heard of this movie before. Andy Samberg. It's this like Andy Samberg spoof movie, just like never stop, never stopping. That other one that he did, uh, which was again like a spoof of like pop star life or whatever it was. Um, John Cena's in it and he plays a guy who's a cyclist. And of course he's wearing like, he just, he's, he's, he's on John Cena's jack anyways, but uh, he doesn't look like your typical cyclist. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if, if you want to play in the majors, but like that, you know, go play that or you want, you know, you still want to go play the the fun other thing where you just hit it really far. I mean, I don't know. It's a lot to give up. Unless you're just, I mean, I would have kind money. of, I would equate it kind of to the, the ruling to transition grooves. It's like, you know, everybody kind of pissed and moaned a little bit and then everybody transitioned and you know, made the groove switch and now nobody cares. And that's just what you play and everybody's playing the same thing and is what it is. I, I think it comes down to, you know, kind of one of my points when, when this all came up is the quality of the product. And if, you know, two under is, is winning tournaments as opposed to 16, 18 under, um, and guys are hacking around on the PGA tour and 16 unders winning it on live. I think that creates a window of opportunity for live because you've got more highlights than, you know, a double bogey winning the tournament. Cause you know, the guy was 250 yards off the tee and had to hit a three wood and dropped one in the water, you know, and you've got that kind of level of parody. I hadn't thought about it until, you know, that question, but I, I could definitely see live not adopting that local rule just to keep the entertainment value higher. And by keeping the entertainment value higher, definitely differentiating the product from the PGA. So that's an interesting twist on it that, that, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Who would really want to see my short ass dunk on an eight foot rim? <laughs> Well, no, but you're talking about taking something away. That's my point. In other words, we've got a 10-foot rim, and you're talking about bringing it up to 12 feet and all of a sudden seeing what the, you know, everybody's used to 10 feet, and now you're talking about, you know, elevating it to 12 feet and watching guys throw bricks up all the time. And, you know, suddenly, you know, shooting percentages goes down. That's It's not lowering it. It's actually raising it, which it diminishes the product. And, you know, if you're not seeing as many dunks in the NBA, you're not tuning in that, that that's been my point the whole time is the PGA tour and live. They're about entertainment. They're not, you know, they're, they're simply about getting eyeballs on Saturday and Sunday to watch. And if you've got guys shooting even par, I just don't see it being as enticing as 16 under. There we go. It's a good point. I was very level headed on my response. Very level headed. I, I was I didn't I was even modulate my second. volume. 
I did I did question whether it was a good idea to to even ask that question, but hey, there's a very a very level-headed response for everybody. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for episode 189 of Fully Equipped. As always, if you want gear news, check out the social handles. We are at fully underscore equipped on Twitter and at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram. Thanks as always for listening. See you next week.